0: Hello and welcome to the Sasha Sessions, a Team USA podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Cohen, Olympic silver medalist in figure skating. Joining me this week is Peter Atia. Peter is a podcast host and physician whose practice focuses on the applied science of longevity. I have to say that I've been looking forward to having you on the podcast for quite some time now. I find the progression of your career to be absolutely fascinating. You have this unique combination of skills and life experiences. And just going back to your time as an undergraduate, I believe you studied applied mathematics and mechanical engineering before you switched and ultimately decided to head to medical school, completed your residency at Johns Hopkins before switching to credit risk modeling at McKinsey, and then finally coming full circle back to medicine with a focus on longevity. I'm very curious to find out what first brought you into medicine and then, ultimately, why you decided to come back.
1: Well, um, you know, I I really enjoyed engineering. And um, the reason I studied engineering and math specifically was because I wanted to go into aerospace engineering. It was actually during medical school that I had been sort of on the side doing some volunteer work with um, kids. Um, and it was kind of through that experience that I uh, got acquainted with some of the sort of medical and health issues that that some of these kids had. And I think over the four years of my you know time in college, I, I think the pull of that experience became more and more profound, such that by the time I was in my last year of college and um, had already submitted my applications to all of the PhD programs for engineering, I, I just really had a complete change of heart and decided, you know, as much as I really enjoyed that stuff, um, I, I wanted to do something different. So that was a big detour. You know, I had to take a post back year and teach calculus on the side while I, you know, took uh, the basic prerequisites to then apply to medical school.
0: I want to give the audience a sense of how intense, focused, and, and driven you are. And I've listened to quite a few of your podcasts and so have Uh, little bits of your personality and your history framed in my mind. But can you share the vignette of an exercise you put yourself through during your last year of medical school in anticipation of having to perform surgeries when you might be tired or (laughs) sleep-deprived?
1: Well, yeah. um, I, I don't know that this is anything wise. It was probably a stupid thing to do. But, yeah, once I was in my fourth year of medical school and decided that I wanted to go into surgery... Um, again, I don't think it's any different than what an athlete would do. And I'm sure something you did, uh, which was, I just decided, look, make the training at least as hard as the event that I'm going to have to do. So every Thursday night I would stay up all night and practice suturing in like a little heart model I had made, um, which forced me to be standing, not eating, drinking, not peeing, not sleeping, and obviously working on the manual dexterity skills that would be necessary to um to to operate. So um and I think that was just something I needed to do sort of psychologically to prove to myself that I had what it took to go down that path.
0: It reminds me of an Olympic teammate of mine, Jeremy Bloom, who would wake him, you know, set the alarm at three in the morning and then go do his practice runs, get on the mountain and ski in the dark at like three AM, just so that if he could do it when it was more difficult, anytime kind of sleep deprived, that he'd be ready when it counted. And this kind of sets the story, I think, of where you came from before you transitioned and maybe through wisdom or various epiphanies and having a family or life experiences along the way, kind of who you are today. So I want to ask, I guess, before I move on, maybe what you learned from those sleep deprived days of residency, because I think that was a time period of your life when you were perhaps at your most intense?
1: Yeah, maybe. I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, I think my intensity has been, I mean, f- from a sort of exercise perspective, my greatest intensity was probably age 13 to 19. And when I look back at sort of the ridiculous things I did during that period of time, I I mean, I, I, I can't believe it was done. Um, And then maybe from a pure academic standpoint, I think college was probably the most intense period of time. And again, I look back at that and I think, I mean, God, it wouldn't have killed you to have had fun at least one day in college. Like you didn't have to stay in the stacks every single minute of every single day studying in the basement of the library. Um, And then similarly, I think residency was probably the most intense period just in terms of the physical stress of not sleeping, you know, eating like crap and yet being so obsessed with trying to master this physical craft. And so spending every moment that I was not in the hospital also trying to perfect that craft or, you know, dividing my time between that and a few other things. Um, so to your question, what did I learn? I mean, I mean, I guess I learned that obsess obsession is transferable. Um, and the, what, you know, I think, the, the, the core things that are necessary to be gritty in one thing can quite easily transfer to another, which I suspect is why someone like you has been able to transfer so effectively from one thing to another because um, once you realize what it took to be successful in athletics, you realize that as long as you have a clear set of objectives in your next endeavor and you understand the strategy around it, uh, the tenacity to kind of put your head down and do it is already in your DNA.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I want to give the audience a little bit of a picture of what you are currently doing with your, your time. And you've started your own medical practice. And it's, it's very different from the focus maybe you had when you were focusing on performance. And so can you tell us a little bit about what, what you do and why you chose this specialty within medicine?
1: I think it's hard to describe what I do, and I I always shy away from the question if it's posed to me at a dinner party or something. I usually have some snarky response about how I'm a shepherd or something like that. But, you know, basically I'm just interested in how to use all of the tools of medicine and even tools that are sort of traditionally not thought of as under the purview of medicine um, to improve longevity, which is again, kind of a bogus term, but it actually has a real meaning, which is um, enhancing lifespan. So delaying the length of, or extending the length of your life and improving your health span, which is the quality of your life. So uh, stated more simply, I suppose, I'm interested in figuring out how to live better and longer uh, using every tool we have at our disposal.
0: And how would you describe the difference and that shift of focus from performance to longevity, like what does that look like, technically or at a you know a granular level?
1: Uh, quite a bit, actually. Um, so, so if you think about what you did to be the best in. Uh, a moment, right? You had a very, you know, most athletes have a relatively narrow window of time in which they can be the absolute best at their sport, and and even when we start to think about the people who transcend that remarkably, whether it be Michael Phelps or Tom Brady, who can do this for a period of twelve to sixteen or twenty years. I mean, that that's an eternity in athletics. I think when you really look at the um, top 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 level of sport I mean personally I've known many athletes who peaked one year too late or too soon for the Olympics and that was basically the end of their career you never hear about them because they you know they peaked in 03 or 06 and you know maybe they made it into the world championships but not to the Olympics or something like that um, but a lot of what you do to prepare for that is actually uh, at odds with longevity I mean remind me of some of the injuries you've you've had Sasha in, in as as a skater, like I mean, what did you do? Didn't you have a compression fracture in your back or something?
0: I did, and extreme arthritis as well from all the back bending and then impact from jumping. I had someone land with their blade through my calf, twenty one stitches, internal and external. I've you know slid through light bulbs, and I've had multiple multiple injuries. And so for me, that was always something that nagged me a lot, especially towards the latter. Part of my career is just how to stay healthy while pushing myself in training. and training. And at the, you know, the last two years of my career, it was a tough balance and I would have loved to train a lot more than I was physically able to.
1: Yeah. And I think that, I mean, that's a very extreme example because you were competing at the highest level. But frankly, even when I look at, you know, people my age, when they start optimizing for, oh, I just wanna win this Ironman or place in the top 10 for my age group or whatever, they're basically doing things that are not exactly aligned with longevity. They're probably overtraining, they're probably increasing their risk of injuries decades down the line, they're actually probably causing the types of myocardial or stress to the heart that aren't actually consistent um, with benefits that they want later on. And, and, and so just using exercise as one example, when you really start to orient towards longevity, you have to take a much longer view of your goals. Most, most people don't really think of it this way, but um, if, if, you know, if you wanna live to be 90, it's probably much more important that at the age of 90, you have the ability to function like a fit 60 year old, than to be 40 and be able to function like a 30 year old, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. And how have you seen that in our youth, we we focus on performance, and maybe it's because we admire our sports heroes, and we have a culture obsessed with youth. And at what point have you seen, whether it was personally or in your clients, that there's this awareness and this shift of longevity? And I know in, in recent years, or many in you know, many startups and many investors that are interested in the longevity space. And so it's kind of in the public awareness. But I'd love to know maybe when that happened for you and maybe when you see it for a lot of your patients or clients.
1: I mean, for me, it happened in sort of two stages. I think the first awareness was more the meta-awareness of the obvious, which was my mortality. And it's not, I mean, there were certainly many times when I came close to dying before this. So this wasn't about that type of awareness of mortality. But when my daughter was born, when I was 35, um, that was that kind of first meta awareness of, oh, there's actually something uh, worth living for that goes far beyond anything I can imagine today. So I think, you know, you're a recent mom, you can probably relate to that. I think anybody who has a child can, can realize that it definitely changes your, your, your outlook a little bit of yourself and your relationship with your own mortality, and then the desire to be around longer. So I think that was sort of step one. And I think for me, step two came, uh, gosh, six years ago, when I sort of had the aha moment of, gosh, like you're, you're, tr- you're really training hard for being a nobody. You know, you're in your early to mid 40s, you're still doing two workouts a day, trying to win the local time trial and trying to figure out a way to be top 10 in your age group in master's swimming or all of these other things. And, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having those goals. Um, and I, I was certainly healthy and fit as a result of them, but I just had the wake up of, hey, this is actually taking you off a more important goal, which is you could channel that time and energy into a much more specific type of training that would be geared towards living longer and better as you age, not just optimizing your performance today. And and again, part of that just came from the fact that, you know, nobody, like, there's no reason for, for someone at my level to be doing that because there's no upside. Uh, I certainly wouldn't suggest that, you know, if someone's 22 years old and they have a chance to be the best in the world, they shouldn't pursue it. By all means, pursue it, but you know, you know when you're when you're kind of an old geezer like me, you you have to be mindful about what the trade-offs are.
0: And following up on that, certainly the the chance to pursue an Olympic or Paralympic dream is really what drives so many young kids and so many people working their way up through their respective sports. How would you advise a recently retired, Athlete, Olympian, or Paralympian, how to switch gears and begin to think about longevity and change and shift that focus and that intensity and dedication into something that can serve them for the rest of their lives.
1: Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I don't. I don't think I know the answer, other than just having looked at a number of my friends go through that transition. You know, I have so many friends who were either professional athletes, Olympians, et cetera. And I, I will say there are some of them who, who, who somehow manage to leave being the best at a given sport and are quite comfortable going down and just doing it at a recreational level and never obviously being as good as they once were, but being totally happy, being a great recreational version of themselves. So, so that phenotype exists conversely, I know others who can never go back and do something at a modest level because it is just too depressing to, you know, so for example, if you were the best 10K runner in the world or the best of, you know, anything, and then you want to leave that sport and then just go out and join a a local running group they find that to be unbearably painful. I mean, I, I have so many friends that were really good swimmers who can't stomach the thought of swimming masters again because they just, they did it enough. They, and they also hate knowing that they're a fraction of what they once were. Okay, so the first thing I would say is decide which of those two camps you're in and don't fight it. And if you're in the latter camp, embrace something new where you can channel your desire to become better at something um, into you know, you know, kind of a, a new activity. So, so I think the, the, the greatest tragedy I see in people who were once great athletes is the complete removal of any form of physical activity when they retire. And, and I'm sure you've seen this just as much as I have, where you, you sort of meet somebody four years after they've retired and you barely recognize them. And, and I think that in, in, in some way that stems from this, well, if I can't be the world's best X, then I'm gonna do nothing. As opposed to saying, well, if I can't be the world's best X, let me become a good Y. And learning to become a Y is actually a journey that's gonna be just as you know, enjoyable to me. Um, now, if your question extends beyond that into the professional transition, um, I, don't, I don't know, that's that to me, is a, you know, that, that's an even more complicated question, of course.
0: Certainly, I think many athletes struggle with that, that time period and it can be very depressing when I used to be able to do triples so easily kind of in my sleep and now I can barely do a lap and I'm winded and I can't do a single jump. So it, I think in one sense, it gives you such a tremendous appreciation for the level that you took your body to. When you were a teenager and just took it for granted, and now there's just a complete another level of respect for the level I pushed my body to and what it was required and ultimately what it was able to do. And then at the same time, I think it's like dealing with a type of mortality, but in your 20s or 30s, depending on the sport, where you might retire from a normal profession in your 60s. And try to find some sense of relevance and what that means of closing this door on, like, your life's work. But as athletes, we do it so early. It's, it's hard to know that you were the best. Your body peaked at something at such a young age. And so it is, it is a challenge, I think, mentally and physically to maneuver and to shift that. But then just to dig a little deeper on the just the longevity side. So like as an athlete, the things that I used to do to try to, you know, sprints for cardio or certain supplements that I took for performance, how should I think about how I should exercise, eat or sleep for longevity? Like, is there something very specific that pops out for you that differentiates the two?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think exercise is by far the easiest place to draw that distinction. So in When you're optimizing for performance, specificity is everything. Uh, You know, someone who's training to run the 100 meter versus someone who's training to run the 1500 versus someone who's training to run the marathon, um, they're gonna train completely differently because they're optimizing different energy systems. So the 100 meter is a pure creatine phosphate activity. There's nothing aerobic about it. There's nothing anaerobic about it. It is a sub 10 second all out burst that, you know, basically goes creatine phosphate to anaerobic. And that's, that's, that's it. I wouldn't, I'd even hesitate to call it anaerobic. Uh, You know, conversely, when you look at the metric mile, you're basically dealing with an energy system that is the maximum aerobic output. So it is, you know, I hate using I hate simplifying it too much, but it's effectively a VO2 max event, Um, which is not to say the person with the highest VO2 max wins, but, but, you know, it's pushing that energy system. And then of course at the mile, you're based, uh, pardon me, at the marathon, you're looking at the most aerobically efficient, uh, mechanically efficient athlete. And again, those are all gross oversimplifications, but they illustrate a point, which is you're not going to take one athlete from one of those and put them in the other to the other. They they are. You have to really specify the training around them. In my view, once you shift out of trying to be the best at one thing and you're trying to be the best 90 year old, which I have this mental model that you've probably heard me talk about on the podcast called the centenarian Olympics. So the centenarian Olympics, of course, is what are the things you want to be able to do as a hundred year old Olympian? And, you know, they're very specific things that someone like me wants to be able to do. And I encourage all of my patients to come up with their own list. What are their things that they want to be able to do in the 10th decade of their life. And you'd be surprised how hard it is to be, you know, in your mid nineties and carry two bags of groceries that weigh 10 pounds each up four flights of stairs, or even harder still for some down four uh, flights of stairs. So I think there are basically four components of, of training that have to be incorporated stability, strength, metabolic or mitochondrial efficiency, which is low end or zone two aerobic training, and some amount of higher end um, aerobic conditioning, kind of like zone five in smaller bursts. Now, none of that is very specific. So like training that way won't make you a very good 10K runner or a very good miler, Um, but it will allow you to sprint up the uh, escalator if it's broken in the airport with your luggage, and, you know, comfortably, you know, walk three miles. So, so, you know, again, it's about understanding what you're optimizing for.
0: Well said. I want to shift to you as an athlete, and I know it's always been a big part of your life, and you've channeled a lot of your intensity and energy into sport, whether that was swimming or cycling in particular. And the focus that you have that I've seen is very familiar to me as an athlete. It's certainly necessary to get to a level in sport and universal among Olympians and Paralympians. Yet over the course of your life, I find you incredibly unique in your ability to repeatedly channel that intensity outside of sports as much as you have within the sport. And so I wonder if you could describe in greater, greater detail the choice of where to focus your energy and what has been the most meaningful or rewarding results of your efforts.
1: Well, maybe physically the, the, the one that um, I think was the most challenging just based on the constraints um, was was swimming because I didn't grow up knowing how to swim. You know, Growing up, all of my focus was on boxing and martial arts. Um, and in medical school, I had an injury that basically took me off my bike. Um, and so a, a few years later... Uh, It's kind of a weird and random story, but I read this book uh, by this woman named Penny Dean, and she had done the fastest crossing of the Catalina Channel. I didn't know what the Catalina Channel was, but it's this body of water between Catalina Island and Los Angeles. And sometime in the 1970s, late 70s, this woman had swum this 21-mile stretch of ocean in just over seven hours. And I was just captivated by this story. And I began reading more and more about this sport of marathon swimming. And I was like, God, this is so incredible. Like, I really wanna do this. Um, Now, I have no idea why I wanted to do it, especially not knowing how to swim. That seemed like a pretty obvious uh, thing you'd wanna know how to do before you took on marathon swimming. Uh, And this this was January of 2004. I still remember it very well. Um, so I started taking swimming lessons, uh, with kids <laughs> and, uh, which was funny cause I was like the only adult in the swim class, but it was very effective. And I then hired a swim coach and I began, uh, by the summer of 04, I was able to join a master's club and I was the s- slowest swimmer. Um, but I met a guy in my swim club who had swum the Catalina channel and swum the English channel. And I, you know, I just sort of set a goal of like, okay, you gotta be able to swim one mile. And, you know, we, we were lucky that we had a long course pool to train in. So, you know, it's a good 50 meters across. So it's like a mile would be 32 laps of that pool. And could you do that without stopping? And, you know, little by little, basically, you know, double that, double that, double that by the summer of 2005, the next summer, this guy, his name was Nick said, you know, I think you could make an attempt at the Catalina channel this fall. And I had just done my first five mile uh, swim. And I thought, God, that's a big jump to go from five miles to what would be over 20 miles in the span of five months or four months. And I was in residency at the time, so I didn't have that much time to train. But anyway, to make a very long story short, sometimes not knowing how hard it would be turns out to be a blessing. And I actually had no idea what I was in store for, but I just, wrote out a schedule of you're gonna ma- swim this far on these days and you're gonna train exactly this way and you're gonna do exactly this that and the other thing and um, you know I got lucky and it just worked out um, and I say I got lucky because I, I think anybody listening to this who's ever you know done ultra marathon ocean swimming knows that uh, you, you know you need to have c- good conditions on the day you're gonna do it a lot can go wrong and far better swimmers than me um, were thwarted in such attempts uh, but anyway, that that was something where I look back and I think, if if I had half the insights that I have today, I would have never attempted to do something so crazy. Sometimes just being kind of a stubborn hammerhead allows you to get things done.
0: And do you think that's a personality trait versus saying, "Hey, I would just love to learn to swim so that it's enjoyable." Versus I need to do something that very few humans can or will ever do. You know, I think I've heard you speak about pushing yourself through some type of ordeal or challenge, which is so difficult or you might be so miserable that the reward on the other side of it becomes just exponentially more pleasurable because of it. I'd love to know where that comes from from you.
1: Well, I, th- I think it's complicated. You know, I, I think that um, I-, I think a lot of it stems from insecurity, um, which is probably true of most things that I feel like I pursued in life. I think there was always some feeling of inferiority and, you know, if I can be exceptional at this, if I can graduate first in my class, and if I can do this thing that's really hard and you know, do this many push-ups and run this many miles, or whatever it is. I, I think even if nobody else knew those things, that you were, you know, but just doing them itself, just like you're, you know, you talked about your your friend who's up there skiing at three in the morning. I mean, in large part, that was for him, right? That was so that he could know that he could do that. And and I felt the same way. When I would, I always felt that I had to finish my run before the sun came up every single morning in high school. Because I knew that the guy that I was going to fight wasn't even running yet. So, so again, it's all these mind games. But I think they do stem from a little bit of insecurity, for sure. Um, and uh, so, so anyway, t- to be clear, I don't know that that's a healthy thing. Uh, to be completely honest, I, I'm not convinced that that's a healthy thing, even if for some people it produces great outputs. Uh, but, but that's kind of a million dollar question, right? I mean, uh, is it? It depends what you're optimizing for. If you're optimizing for joy in life and you could be successful but but miserable because you feel like you constantly want more, you constantly need to change and achieve something else, then I, I don't know if you've really won anything.
0: I think my follow-up question to that would be, do we actually choose what we optimize for? Or are we do we is that something we fight because of insecurities? Are we innately programmed to need to prove and achieve? whether that makes us happy or not. And I think this is maybe leads to some other questions of as one walks through life and has a certain maturity and has had certain experiences, you know, you start reading the Stoics and you start meditating and you start thinking about your mortality and your children and and what you actually want in life. I would say that personally, I aspire to, but I have not yet been able to really choose what I optimize for. There's a little voice inside that that really steers me. So feel free to kind of comment or respond on that, how you how it affects you.
1: I don't know. I mean I mean I guess I, I think some would argue I, I, I can see the argument that you don't, but I but I also think we do have some control over over the decisions that we make and I think we to some extent have have control over over our demons and I think in some cases our demons do really quote unquote productive things for us in the business world uh in the athletic arena um but it, but I also think that they, they you know the chickens always come home to roost at some point and I think a lot of people who can channel all of their demons into some remarkable achievement usually have something leak out elsewhere right it usually sabotages relationships for example um, so I think that's why for me trying to be a little bit more reflective on the why and 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 being a bit more open and honest with myself about you know what it is I'm pursuing and why and again that that could be sort of athletically or not I don't I'm not pursuing anything athletically at the moment. Um, it, it's still, uh, it's still a great exercise. In, in, you know, I hate it sounds corny, but kind of sort of probing my soul a bit.
0: That's that's well said. Certainly, I want to step back a little bit and see how you value and allocate your time and energy to these potentially conflicting goals and for me it was winning exploring finding meaningful work and you know for you certainly with your your practice your pursuits in sport longevity and and your family i know that your priorities or values have evolved over your career and your life and i know you you reflect a lot and try to make very deliberate choices so i'd love to understand maybe your framework or how you've thought about allocating time and attention, which are such scarce resources these days.
1: They are the scarcest. Um, I mean, it's a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. And and so I think there's no question in my mind that my highest priority is my family. And I think that that's become much more obvious to me in the past three years. I have three kids and they're, you know, about 12 and a half, six and, a half, and, three and, a half. and and sort of... A number of events in my in my life over the past few years have have really brought home to me that there is this super finite window that I have with my kids that I'll never get back. Right, once kids are gone, once they're off in college, um, it, you just don't have quite the same experience with them. It'll be a different experience. It sounds like it can you know be a great experience, but it won't be quite the same remarkable formative time that I have now. So you know that that is just my highest priority and if anything good for me personally has come out of covid it's been a dramatic reduction in travel i mean i used to basically live on the road probably 20 days a month i was traveling obviously that stopped and that will never happen again and that's been incredible so to me that's 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 just the most important thing and and basically also just kind of learning to say no to things and learning to accept that there are just a bunch of things i don't like doing and i think i used to do things a little bit out of obligation and a little bit of feeling like well i probably should do this because it's a great opportunity or i probably should do this because th- this is a nice person who's asking me and i i'm i'm getting i'm still not great but i'm getting better at just realizing you know, actually, I don't. I don't want to go give a talk. Like, okay? you know, I get asked to go give talks all the time. I hate. To- I hate public speaking. I despise it actually. So I'm not going to do it anymore, um, unless unless there's some really compelling reason for me to do so.
0: That makes sense, especially being driven by insecurity or wanting to please or achieve. It's it's hard to turn down what seems like a a good opportunity to do that. I want to circle to the topic of meditation, because I know it's something that is pivotal to many athletes training. And, you know, I think when I competed, we didn't call it meditation. We called it visualization, you know, which is a a different version of, of meditation, but it was a huge part of my training and focus and imagining my Olympic routine four years away and how I would feel and how I would respond to that. It's become such a, theme in popular culture now that everyone meditates and there's an app for it and and there's an awareness. And it seems like the people that are the most intense and trying to achieve the most are also really wrapped up around this idea and practice of meditation. Uh, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I know meditation practice is, is a part of your life and maybe when you started and why.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, I think meditation means many different things to many different people. And obviously there are different schools of meditation. Um, f- for me, meditation is just a tool. Um, it's a, it's an exercise. So, uh, again, I, I, I'm sure I, I'm trying to think who it might've been Jeff Warren, who's a meditation teacher. And I think he used this analogy, you know, you can, <clears throat> you know, think of meditation, like going to the gym and lifting weights going to the gym and lifting weights, unless you're a power lifter, is not really an objective, right? You lifted weights a lot as a figure skater, but you didn't do it because you're interested in lifting weights. You did it because the strength that you gained, the muscular endurance that you gained, was able to port into the thing you did care about, which was being able to jump higher and being able to recover quicker from said jump so you could do the next jump, right? I mean, you were. Do it, you were moving around these pieces of iron so that you were changing the physiology of the fibers of your muscle to help you do what you wanted. And that's how I think of meditation. This idea that I you know, would sit there, close my eyes, focus on my breath, I find that neither enjoyable, particularly interesting, uh, th- that you know, I don't, I actually enjoy lifting weights much more than I enjoy that. But why do you do that? I think there's great value in that exercise in that it teaches you something that you carry with you in the rest of your life, which is it teaches you that there's an inner dialogue inside our heads that almost never goes away. And for people who haven't meditated at all, especially a type of meditation called mindfulness meditation, that idea might seem foreign, that idea might seem odd, that you have an inner dialogue that never goes away. That inner dialogue turns out to matter a lot. Um, it can have very negative consequences if it's saying the wrong thing. You can also make mistakes in the way you react to situations, which I'm very good at, meaning I make lots of mistakes incorrectly reacting to situations, when you don't recognize the changes in your internal barometer when you don't recognize the difference between stimulus and response. And so I think the simplest way to understand what meditation is, is to think of it as a tool that creates a bigger and bigger pause between stimulus and response. So if the default as humans is no time between stimulus and response, because again, evolution wouldn't have wanted you to have had much of a gap because the types of stimuli we faced hundreds of thousands of years ago should not have warranted thought, right? You hear something that's threatening, you should be running before you ponder whether something, oh, is that, I wonder what that is. Oh, maybe let me go investigate. No, just get the hell out of there. Um, but today, most things that elicit a, a sort of primal response from us don't actually warrant it, right? You know, Someone cuts you off in traffic. Well, that's not really a threat to your life, you know? You, you get into an argument with your spouse about something that probably doesn't matter. Again, it's not a threat to your life, but it's interesting that internally we can still have a lot of that same response. And again, meditation becomes this great tool to help you think, oh, look at how I'm being triggered by this. I mean, just this morning, like I was in my simulator, I love race cars and driving my race car simulator. Um, and I had an especially bad session in my simulator today. Um, I was very disappointed. So I, um, after I crashed, which is the end of the simulator. like I, once I crash, I pretend it's a real crash and I've really crashed and I don't have a car to drive that day. So I'm like, well, great. So I go back upstairs. Um, and my daughter's getting ready to leave for school. And I remember walking up the stairs being so angry that I had crashed because it was such a stupid, it was a part of the circuit I never crash on. I was like, how could you possibly crash there? But as I, got to the top, as I was walking to the top of the stairs, I could hear her talking with um, my wife, and they just sounded so happy. You know, it was like they were just having a cute little conversation. And I, I just it immediately made me realize, oh, contrast that sound with the feeling you actually have in the pit of your stomach and this silly thought you're having about how you crashed a few minutes ago. And by the time I, like, turned the corner, it was sort of like I'd reset myself. And I was like, I'm not going to miss on this opportunity. I was like, look, it's a blessing that I crashed because now I've got an extra five minutes with her. Um, So, again, to me, that's the power of something like meditation. For me, it's never been about performance, right? It's never been – which I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying, like, it's never been a tool to visualize how I'm going to shoot my bow and arrow better or drive my car better, you know, the race car, things like that.
0: Certainly. And it's – been an evolutionary process for me, starting with visualization of a certain jump routine over and over to now recognizing a feeling, trying to break down the sensations associated with that and be curious instead of judge and push it away. These ideas of aversion and and clinging, which um, I have a lot of work to do with. I have a question that I've actually been personally really interested in. You have Access to such an interesting group of people that you work with as your clients—Olympians, uh, Navy SEALs, some of the top leaders in business and technology—and I've always wondered how are they similar to high-performing athletes, and how are they very different?
1: Um, I got—it's interesting. I—I I don't know. Um, I mean, there's the glib answer that you could come up with, right, which is, you know, usually people who are the best at what they do are not accidentally the best at what they do, right? Like, you you don't get to become the founder, you know, you don't become the founder and CEO of an enormous technology company just because you got lucky, like— yeah, luck always plays a role, but you know, you were very deliberate. You did a lot of things right. You worked really hard. I mean, all of those things are, are sort of true, and I think that's largely true with um, with the best athletes. I mean, I, I you know, they 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 have a natural talent. They have um, usually an incredible love for practicing that talent and, and, and refining that talent. Um, so it's, I guess it's hard for me to say. I mean, I think there are a bunch of similarities. I mean, if I'm gonna be completely truthful, I think generally people who are in the midst of their athletic career tend to be a bit more myopic than people who are exceptional at other things. Um, so it's to me a little easier to have a conversation with somebody who's, you know, at the top of their career in business than someone who's at the top of their career in sport.
0: That makes, that, that, that makes the, a lot of sense. The latter tends
1: to be a, a little bit more, uh, a little less well-rounded.
0: That, that certainly makes a lot of sense. And I don't know exactly what to ascribe that to other than you start a sport so early and then it's just rinse and repeat. But I, I definitely agree with you. And I think a variety of life experience and having a childhood to explore other things, I think, allows for more breadth in people that excel in areas outside of sport.
1: But, but that said, I mean, I have several very close friends who are, you know, former top level Olympians, and once they leave that sport, um, I mean, maybe there's a selection bias here. I mean it's probably the reason we are also good friends is because of how curious they are and all of the other things that they're you know interested in and, and how we've found common interests. So um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you'd probably be able to speak to that much, much better than I could.
0: Certainly. I think it's a singular narrow focus while in the sport, feeling this sense of guilt if you divert any of that attention or energy elsewhere you are taking that away from the mental focus of your sport. And therefore, you are taking away the chance to be as good as you hypothetically could be. And so I think that's perhaps where it stems from. And then once you retire, it's off to the races. So I know you're very thoughtful and you've, you're very well studied in mechanical engineering and medicine and finance and I know you've read a lot and on your podcast, you, you interview such a wide variety of guests from so many different fields. And so I'd be very curious to hear what people have most shaped you, your worldview and,
1: and why. Well, it depends. I think there's lots of different things, you know, so I didn't grow up in the United States, um, but I've lived here now more than half my life. And I, I feel more like an American than a Canadian I grew up in Canada, but because I didn't go to school in Canada, either high school, sorry, because I went to school in you know, high school and college there, I didn't study American history. So that's actually one of my favorite things to read about outside of my field, or out, I would call it outside of areas that directly translate into my work. Um, and so I, I actually derive enormous pleasure from reading about you know important moments in history, whether it be the Civil War, Um, the First World War, the Second World War, uh, civil rights struggles. Like I find these things very interesting and I find the personalities behind them very interesting. Um, so, So that's definitely something that I find gratifying. It also, I think, allows me to have a bit of a break from the world that's around me, which I do find a little bit depressing. So I think Most people are probably not happy with the world we live in from a political standpoint, from a sort of intellectual standpoint. I mean, I I don't, I think only the most extreme people would find our current environment a great one. I I just, I, I think it's just wonderful to be able to have a reprieve from that and to go back and focus more of my energy thinking about, you know, you know what were the struggles that Abraham Lincoln had to deal with, or Teddy Roosevelt, or Lyndon Johnson, or FDR. So, so again, no bearing on my on my professional life, um, but but just an enormous pleasure reading that type of stuff. Um, in terms of something that has probably a very direct bearing on my life and my work, I think is just a greater and greater um, dive into mental health. I think this is undoubtedly the most underappreciated facet of health and longevity. Um, and we can call it mental health. We can call it emotional health. I I think I don't really distinguish between these two, even though, um, you you know, certainly the field of medicine would, would refer to mental health in pathologic terms. But, but I, I, just think that that's, uh, something I can't learn enough about, both in myself and then by extension in in the people I'm trying to help.
0: Both your answers, um, historical perspective and context, I think really puts our experiences and political, cultural events of our time in in a little bit of perspective and gives us greater understanding of moments we're living through. And if you don't have your mental health, your emotional health, if you're not aware of it and How you need to cultivate that can also really, really undermine a happy and a positive life. I want to conclude with one last question, and this has been incredibly fascinating thus far. It's a question I ask all my guests, and it's what would your Olympic or Paralympic moment in life be?
1: I think I'm rather afraid of a climactic moment, right? I'd I'd rather have a climactic season, you know, a climactic decade, um... Uh, I'd rather yeah I'd, 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 I don't there's no single achievement that I'm striving for. there's no there, there's no goal that I have that once achieved I, I would look at it and think I've arrived and 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 to be clear, I'm not saying the opposite, which is I want to live in a constant state of pursuit either. I, I think I just want to sort of, I actually want to fight the urge to do that. I think my natural tendency has been, if this, then I'll feel that. Um, and I'm trying to basically simultaneously be as in the moment as possible and yet take the longest view of possible and spread you know joy out as much as possible in life. And, um, and to me, it's just hard to fathom how A moment that would be so great could be followed by anything but a letdown, for me personally.
0: I think you're not the only one. That's very well said and very uh, Buddhist of you and great context to remember what happens after these moments. So thank you for sharing that. Well, Peter, thank you for your time today. I know our audience will love this. It was a pleasure.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Sasha. It was great talking with you today.
0: Please subscribe to Sasha Sessions wherever you get your podcasts. You can find new episodes every Monday. Produced by Bigfoot Music and Sound in New York City.